Hello and welcome back to Filmonomics at Slated, your weekly reality check into the workings of the film business. I'm Colin Brown, the host of this podcast series, and my guest this week knows quite a bit about reality, or more precisely, the representation of reality, on screens big and small. He's Morgan Spurlock, and if documentaries can have stars, then Morgan is one of the non-fiction world's most identifiable headliners, both as an engaging on-camera personality in his own films and series, and as a savvy champion of works by other docu-storytellers. Now, it hardly needs stating that right now, documentary filmmakers like Morgan find themselves at a critical moment. How do they establish an effective storytelling voice and make a decisive impact in this post-truth world of fake news and filter bubbles? Against a barrage of disinformation and alternative facts, all those award-winning, meticulously observed documentaries can seem almost precious by comparison. And are they even relevant, you might ask yourself, after you've wasted yet another hour responding angrily to social media polemics? After all, the highest-grossing documentary in the past 12 months at the US box office, Hillary's America, The Secret History of the Democratic Party, was so crudely made that more than one critic deemed it an embarrassment to propaganda. But the fact that this political hatchet job grossed $13 million domestically shouldn't be seen as an open invitation to dedicated documentarians to abandon their own storytelling instincts and truth-searching principles. Quite the reverse, says Morgan. And so I think at a time like now, there's a real there's a real desire to be completely reactive to the things that are around you, which I think you can be to a point, but you also have to think from a filmmaking standpoint, what are the things you're reacting to right now going to be the same things people are reacting to in a year? Determining what people might want to see in theatres in a year's time, long after the cable news networks have finished gorging on a particular hot story and moved on to their next hunting grounds, is one of the things that preoccupies Morgan's prolific New York-based production outfit, Warrior Poets. Now that he's a media personality in his own right, Morgan is no doubt inundated with pleas to help shape and shepherd other people's projects as a producer. The films that he and his team end up saying yes to are those that they feel that Warrior Poets can have an additive influence. And in terms of subjects and tone, they're not necessarily the ones one might expect from the guy who made his name puking up on camera and enduring rectal exams with his breakout film Super Size Me, or else poking fun at the product placement business in his meta-documentary The Greatest Movie Ever Sold. And that's precisely the point. These are the kind of films best told by filmmaking sensibilities other than Morgan. A perfect example is The Eagle Huntress, Otto Bell's subtitled documentary about a nomadic 13-year-old Kazakh girl learning from her father how to hunt with a golden eagle across the Mongolian steppes. An unexpected hit, it grossed more than $3.1 million for Sony Pictures Classics. And another example arrives this very week with the world premiere of No Man's Land here in New York's Tribeca Film Festival. This is director David Byer's account of the 41-day occupation of a wildlife refuge in Oregon by an armed militia group and their bloody showdown with the government early last year. The film offers an inside view of the Patriot Movement, those anti-federal ideologues and gun-toting insurrectionists whose fringe beliefs rapidly entered the conversational mainstream. Morgan produced the film alongside slated member David Holbrook, and two of the executive producers who helped finance the film, Impact Partners Dan Kogan and First Look Media's Adam Pincus, 
are also unslated, as is the sales agent Josh Braun of Submarine. By foreshadowing Donald Trump's own ascent to power in 2016, the documentary shows how it is still possible to shed new light on current affairs in ways that resonate well beyond the daily news cycles. This is not the first time that Morgan has helped lift the curtain on a particular facet of American life. Indeed, his Inside Man series for CNN investigates everything from gambling and gaming to space exploration and building billion-dollar startups. All of which begs the question, what would the film business world look like if Morgan Spurlock turned the camera on his own industry? It would be a pretty boring series. <laughs> you know, the, the nonfiction world is, uh, you know, it's not so glamorous. It's not so, uh, it's not so sexy and exciting. There's a lot of, lot of sitting around, a lot of long days, long hours in edits. Um, I think the, the edited version of that series is always much better than, than what you're shooting. I think the, the exciting thing for me about this whole landscape is just the opportunity that it has. You know, back when I made Supersize Me, it was such a kind of a transformational moment where it was kind of this moment where not only was it kind of the like this climactic rise of independent film, but it was also this climactic beginning to the the democratization of storytelling, the democratization of filmmaking, where prosumer cameras had finally gotten to the point where suddenly anyone with a camera and a computer and a good idea could make a movie. Um, all you had to do was invest the sweat equity. And if you'd invest the time, then you could make a movie. And so, I mean, that was a real game changer. And I think what we've seen after that now has kind of been this democratization of distribution, where now there's even more places to put your stories and get them out into the universe. You can put them on YouTube or create your own channel to distribute them out to an audience independently. Um, the problem is now is who's watching them? Where are these eyeballs? How do you drive people to see these films at this point? And I think that's the next big billion dollar idea is this democratization of marketing, this democratization of, of promotion, this democratization of curation, where suddenly like-minded people can help push you towards the things they love. And I think Twitter's kind of begun that. I think there'll be even more of that through social media that will create real value. But that's going to be the next big thing is how you can, how you can through a multitude of voices, point toward people towards one important, valuable piece of content and make that profitable for a filmmaker. Um, we haven't quite seen that turn the corner yet, but it's coming in a big way. The fact that this last democratization wave has yet to fully kick in goes some way to explaining why the much-vaunted long-tail vision, first described by Chris Anderson back in 2004, has yet to materialize in the storytelling world. For all the advances in recommendation engines and matchmaking systems, audiences still gravitate to a small handful of superhits, rather than divide their collective spending power across a vaster array of niche offerings. That will change, suggests Morgan, when filmmakers enjoy the same easy access to the means of marketing that they have to both the means of production and the means of distribution. In the meantime, the fact that most of the spoils do still go to those top-tier titles with the highest awareness can also have its benefits too. It has created something of a feeding frenzy among the networks for premium documentaries, as Morgan explains now. Yeah, so, so what happened is like, so as, as all of these networks started making this high quality fiction television, the expectations from viewers for nonfiction started to rise. So the, the viewership started to drop on all of like these bearded shows that were across all these networks, while the numbers on things like The Jinx or Making a Murderer suddenly started to, to get higher. 
So our, our taste expectations started to match our fiction expectations. And I think that from a nonfiction story telling standpoint, that's fantastic because now all the networks want, what is their premium nonfiction show? What's their premium nonfiction storytelling? And the fact that you're able to now push that, not just to like the HBOs or FX's or Showtime's or Netflix's of the world, but much wider across, you know, other cable networks or other digital networks is awesome. And it's so exciting. So as much as I want to like be chasing the kind of the fiction dragon right now, um, now is a great time to be a doc storyteller just because there's never been more places to tell great high quality stories than there are right now. Deciding what nonfiction stories are worth pursuing in this exciting new world is itself an interesting conundrum. There are constant temptations to resist or rise above. The pitches from networks itching for you to repeat what has worked so well for you before. The constant drumbeat of news headlines demanding to be immediately exploited. And the siren call of cinema itself that wants to give every documentary idea the full big screen theatrical treatment, even if the material itself calls for something less expansive. Here's how Morgan himself navigates around the question of what to choose as his next project. I'll tell that in two points. I mean, I think the first one is like right after I made Supersize Me is everybody wanted me to be the food guy. So like anytime there was a food story or there was like a story of corporate malfeasance, like this is what everybody wanted me to make. And from my standpoint, it's like, well, those aren't just the stories I want to tell. And, you know, I made a decision early on to just tell stories that I was passionate about and not ones that I think continue to resonate with what people love to say, well, this is what your brand is. You have to do this. And I think that, you know, I hope that what we do is we tell great stories. You know, I hope that what we do is we make great movies or TV shows that resonate with audiences because they're smart, because they're funny, because they're entertaining. And so I think at a time like now, there's a real there's a real desire to be completely reactive to the things that are around you, which I think you can be to a point. But you also have to think from a filmmaking standpoint. What are the things you're reacting to right now going to be the same things people are reacting to in a year? Because doc, a doc from if you start today, it'll be probably 12 months unless you have a TV partner um, until it's going to come out. So I think that we try not to be completely reactive to things that are in the media or that are happening around us. And it's hard not to um, want to chase a lot of these things as, you know, there's more and more crazy going on around us. But I think there's smarter ways for us to kind of apply what we do in, uh, in a longer tail um, where we can chase things that are a bit more a bit more longer term. Now, that being said, that's why I think there's such great value in short form storytelling, because there's a lot of short form content that we're making. Like we did an incredible film series with Paul Allen called We the Economy that was like these short films all about economics. We did a series called We the Voters where we reminded people why they should vote or why certain things are the way they are in the government. Um, those were turned around really quickly and put out a, at a very specific time before the election. I think that short form content is a great way to be really on, in the moment and reactive from a nonfiction storytelling standpoint, um, because it doesn't require as long as an investment, as, as time investment, economic investment. You can find people who will put those out faster. Um, partners are hungry for things that are, you know, kind of that shareable and that viral. So for me, I think that what, what I think is awesome um, is that now, while it's a great time for nonfiction storytelling, it's also a great time 
for a multitude of that nonfiction storytelling. So there's a great place for stories that are two hours or 90 minutes, you know, that are feature films. There's great ones that are for 45 minutes to an hour. There's great places to take, you know, doc stories that are 30 minutes or less. And now there's actual places to take ones that are five minutes and less. And that is a, that's an incredible place for you to kind of flex different, different muscles in storytelling. Now, exactly what makes a documentary subject deserving of a full-length feature is something that has preoccupied the non-fiction world ever since around 1990. That was when, at the Sundance Film Festival, Michael Moore's Roger and Me first woke up the business world to the theatrical potential of documentaries as legitimate forms of entertainment, storytelling, and box office revenue. Usually, the answers revolve around notions such as the scale and scope of the ideas, the cinematic style of the storytelling, and the narrative arc of the characters. Morgan's own benchmarks are characteristically straightforward and pragmatic. Yeah, well, I think it's. I think financing is one. Like, can you can you raise the money for it? And is there an actual there there? Is the is there, is there a story that will hold ninety minutes? And there's a lot of filmmakers who, when they bring its movies and they say, "I've got this film," um, and they've got this movie that's like ninety minutes long or you know ninety five minutes long, and I watch it and I'm like you've milked 45 minutes of a movie into an hour and a half. And ultimately this movie should only be about 45 minutes or 40 minutes. Um, and trying to convince someone to like turn it into a short is a hard thing because, you know, as a filmmaker, you want to make feature length films. You want to do that. From my standpoint, I'm not as precious about it anymore because I think that there are movies that should be 90 minutes or feature length, but there's movies that are much better told and a shorter form content um, because they're much more to the point. And I think that, you know, I think it's just after time we've realized, you know, what are those opportunities or what are those stories and, um, and where does it go? And I think that, uh, we analyze that with everything that we're pitched with every idea that we have. And there's things that we may be really excited about from the beginning as being feature links, but the more we talk about them, we realize it's better as like, you know, a 45 minute episode of our CNN series or, an, or another show. One of the recurring rumbles now being heard across the documentary community concerns the increasing reluctance by distributors to release documentaries theatrically, unless they are utterly distinctive. If true, then non-fiction films may well be the victim of their own supersized successes a decade ago. Compared to the high watermarks of films such as Fahrenheit 911, March of the Penguins, and An Inconvenient Truth, not to mention of course Morgan's own Supersize Me, even the most successful documentaries these days don't seem to gross nearly as much money as they used to. Unless you happen to release an IMAX nature documentary or a concert film in 3D. Indeed, Morgan owes his biggest hit to date to a British-Irish boy band. His $10 million backstage film One Direction This Is Us grossed $68.5 million worldwide and is ranked 8th among the documentaries on the all-time list of US box office performers. Given the perceived problems of securing a release and the growing tendency of filmmakers themselves to take a more proactive role in the commercial handling of their films, I asked Morgan whether he considered getting into distribution in some form. Well, I mean, we've partnered with a lot of people in distribution. So, you know, we have a partnership with iTunes through our new Indiegogo partnership where we're helping, you know, not only raise money for filmmakers, but backstopping them into a partnership with iTunes where if we can't find uh, you know, or lock up a distribution partner. It's got guaranteed distribution through them. Um, you know, we did a partnership with Virgil Films and Abramarama for like the last few years where we were getting movies into theaters and then having them backstopped against Amazon, iTunes, Netflix. So I feel like there's so many distribution partners 
that rather than just being a distribution engine, I'd rather help them, you know, find that partner and just kind of be involved in the production and kind of set up the distribution versus kind of having to deal with all the marketing that goes into it or all the delivery that goes into it. Um, there's people, I think, who are much better suited to kind of do the full distribution model than we are. In 2011, after seeing so many film and TV franchises turned into what were essentially glorified advertisements for global brands, Morgan decided to make a film about the product placement business, sponsored by the very corporations that appear in that film. The resulting documentary, Pom Wonderful Presents, The Greatest Movie Ever Sold, is the only film that Morgan has made that was profitable before it was ever seen by audiences. Pom Wonderful, The Juice Empire, paid a cool $1 million on the stipulation that Morgan put the brand's logo above the title on the film's posters and trailers. More than a dozen others chipped in as well. And to secure their financial involvement, Morgan guaranteed not to disparage any of the multiple sponsorship partners on screen, although none were given final approval on the film or even allowed to see how they were portrayed ahead of time. While clearly a stunt exercise in meta-filmmaking, the fact that Morgan was able to navigate his way around the world of advertising so successfully made me wonder whether brands could now partner up with filmmakers to find target audiences they have in common. Could this be one of the keys to democratizing film marketing, I wondered? I think it can potentially be led by brands, but most brands are so risk averse, they're afraid of doing anything that's controversial. And I, I just spoke at a panel at South by Southwest where I said, now is the biggest time for brands to, you know, kind of man up and, you know, and really stand behind what their kind of corporate ethos is or what their employees believe they stand for. Um, you can't just kind of have middle ground anymore where you don't agree with what's happening in the world. And I think that, you know, you, there is there is a there is a right and there's a wrong. There is there is fact and there is fiction. And I think that you, it doesn't take a, an agreement on those to be a human being and say, here's what we really believe is best for us as people. And I think the more brands that kind of stand up and have the balls to do that are going to be really successful. Not that Morgan has seen any real firsthand evidence of such a sea change. I, th I think brands are still afraid. I think brands are still caught up in this kind of us versus them mentality. And, and it's, a, it's a problem. You know, I feel like that they don't want to do anything that's going to upset the apple cart. You know, if you look at what happened just a few weeks ago where the CEO of, of Starbucks said they were going to hire 10,000 refugees over the next however many years. And then suddenly there was this big Starbucks boycott. Um, I think that, you know, there's two ways to look at this. First, from an American perspective, um, which is, you know, from, as, as you look at what's happening in our country, um, and you're a brand, what does your brand represent within that conversation? And what do you want to, the, to have your brand stand for? What does it mean? Um, and there's plenty of content you can get behind to help represent that from a storytelling standpoint. You don't have to produce a film from the beginning, but you can get, on, get involved later on and help kind of get it out into the, into the world for all to see through a co-promotion standpoint or a co-distribution standpoint. Um, and then on a global scale, uh, I think it's even more important is what do you want the eyes of the world to believe you stand for? And I think that brands are still talking about it. I, I talk to CMOs all the time who say that there's an opportunity for them to do it. I think we need to get to a place where when people take risks, their job isn't also at risk. I think that's the other thing is people are so scared of taking a chance on something they believe in because they're afraid they're going to get fired. When it comes to his own investigations as a filmmaker, Morgan often uses humor to disarm or diffuse situations. 
So I wondered whether there were any useful tactics he had learned that can help assuage a frightened corporate executive who might be considering whether to lend his or her brand support to a documentary. I mean, I, I think you can't you can't soothe the, the anxiety completely. I think that you can you can do it in a way where you can do less. I mean, if the film's already finished and it's a piece of content that stands for something uh, that that I think is going to drive a conversation, like a perfect example, the film that we're taking Tribeca, No Man's Land, which is a fantastic look at kind of the rise of the Patriot movement in America and the standoff that happened at the Malheur Wildlife Refuge in Oregon, you know, uh, just over a year ago. The film does a great job of not really pointing fingers, of not saying who's right and who's wrong. It's a great conversation starter, and it's one that I think will generate a tremendous amount of debate. Are there brands that could get behind a film like that? Of course there are. Um, will they? Probably not, because I think they'll look at it as a bit of a powder keg, um, and that's the hard thing. So I think that we're in a position with that film, luckily enough, where I think that film will drive enough dialogue. The harder point becomes when you have a smaller film that won't drive enough of that dialogue, and then a brand says, well, I don't want to get behind that because it doesn't feel big or noisy enough, but they're afraid of the bigger, noisier movies. So it's a catch-22. Like, you can't really win in that situation in convincing a brand. Welcome to the whimsical, contradictory world of branded content. It's a world where every company is looking for distinctive content with which to differentiate themselves from their competitors, but to do so in not such a way that raises their corporate head above the parapet for fear that they might get shot down in front of their own customers. I do think you'll see some brands that will go that will go the Red Bull route, you know, that will basically say, we're going to make stuff that really dedicates itself to our audience or really stands for what we believe our core values are. It's just going to take time. I think it's going to take more companies standing up for that and more CMOs doing that because I think it's just, it's just going to be more valuable for distribution companies to have somebody who can F offset some of those marketing costs. And I think that if you can offset some of those marketing costs with a partner that isn't afraid and one that really brings value, then I think it's a win for everybody. When you consider the gut-wrenching topics that documentary filmmakers have to so often confront, and then couple that with the constant battles involved in getting those stories told without compromising their editorial integrity, it's a wonder that Morgan Spurlock can remain so cheerful. It's one of his trademarks as a screen persona, of course, but that bright and breezy disposition seems to carry over to his work behind the camera too. Is he really that upbeat all the time? Listen, if I wasn't so optimistic, I wouldn't still be in the film business. <laughs> I mean, I think from my standpoint is I've been I've been really fortunate to be surrounded by and get to work with really talented people. And it's something that we continue to do. I'm blessed every day that we have an army of people who come to work here that love what they do, that work hard, that give a shit, that, that know how to have fun, but at the same time dream big and give you everything that they have on projects. And I think that we've created an environment here that is really conducive to positivity and conducive to change. And, you know, that's what I want Warrior Poets to continue to do. And I think that the more that we can kind of stay true to that belief and stay true to that mission um, that if we can make people laugh, then we can make people listen. Then I think that, you know, inshallah, we'll be doing this for another 20, 30 years. 
As a galvanizing mission statement for a production company, that's certainly a hard one to beat. And it's in total keeping with the brand personality analysis that was done on Morgan himself by a branding expert as part of that documentary, The Greatest Movie Ever Sold. The Morgan Spurlock brand, the expert told him, is both mindful and playful. Yes, there's a certain paradox in that juxtaposition, he was told. And yes, if he were a company, chances are he would focus on being one or the other, mindful or playful, since it's human nature to avoid things they're not sure of. But Morgan embraces both elements and turns that duality into a positive. I suspect too that many other effective filmmakers and producers share a similar split personality characteristic, one that finds room for both daring adventure and contemplative empathy. Well, that's it from me and Slater for this week. Next week, we're going to be talking with an indie film financier who put money into two films that are premiering at the Tribeca Film Festival and has several others in production. Please tune in then. And if you are in New York, do check out No Man's Land. It premieres tomorrow and plays four more times later this week and next, which you can find on the Film Festival website. Oh, and if you like this particular show, please subscribe to this podcast series and review us on iTunes. That's the kind of brand sponsorship that we depend on. The daily realities of the film business might be a little too mundane to make a good documentary about, but the personalities who turn film ideas into reality are consistently worth listening to. Their optimism alone is infectious and inspiring. 